So welcome everybody to episode 69 of Dork Tunes. So this is our first episode in well, in quite a few months um, and I must apologise. Reason being, and I was just speaking to uh, a new guest about this, was because I started a new job just before Christmas. So that's kind of taken a lot of my time because it's super, super, super busy. So, but we're back now. So here we are, episode 69. So this week, um, I'm talking to a very nice gentleman. Uh, I'll let him introduce himself. Hi, um, my name's Justin Bell, and um, I'm the audio director and composer at Obsidian Entertainment. Okay. Hello, Justin, and welcome, and thank you very much for taking part. Um, so, Justin, tell me a little bit about you. Where did you come from? How did you get to where you are today? Oh, like, yeah. You, um, you know, normally, you'd speak to, I've spoken to so many different composers, and every single one has a different journey. So some, uh, you know, basically networked until they got some work. Some went through the classical kind of, you know, they did college, they got the experience, they had friends in, in you know, in studios, they kind of went in that way. How did it happen for you? Uh, yeah, thanks for that question. And first of all, thanks a lot, Pete, for uh, for doing Dork, uh, dork Tunes. Um, it's uh, it's really great that you, you do this and that you're supporting the game music community. And um, yeah. Um, Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, well, let's see. How did I get started? Um, you know, I played I played piano when I was a kid. Very little. Um, I was three years old, but I, I wasn't a very good student. Um, I wouldn't practice, but I would play a lot. And I just sort of dabbled a bit uh, throughout my life um, and uh, was surrounded by music. My uncle was a percussionist mm -hmm. um, and uh, my stepfather was a singer and he had a little band. And um, so uh, when I when I turned 13, uh, I got an electric guitar and started everything teaching changed. myself. Yes. Yeah. Everything <laughs> changed. Right. Exactly. Um, I had a little portable recorder. They called them a Porta studio. It was the Porta studio 424. I think, I think I'm not sure if that's the exact number, but it was just a little cassette four track cassette recorder that you can record four tracks onto. And, uh, I would record my own music and record my, my band and whatnot. And, was in a ska band and a punk band for a little while. And, uh, um, you have turned, what's that? Oh yeah. Yeah. I've <laughs> always had sort of the shaved. This has been the look for many, many years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Just easier. Right. When I, I know. Yeah. When I was, um, I always tell this story when I was uh, living back home in Dublin in Ireland, um, I used to spend no joke, a hundred pounds a month getting my hair done. I'd have like, at one point I had seven different colors in it and the guy that used to do it, he'd spend like four or five hours doing it and he'd take pictures every month of the different hairstyles that he'd give me. So he'd put it in his book. That's cool. Yeah, right. this we is need so to see some pictures of that. <laughs> Weirdly, no. <laughs> it was before the time of um, <laughs> camera phones, so nothing. No pictures, huh? Hmm? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, yeah, well, maybe you should just do it, just dye it again, you know, and and post some pictures just for fun. There's a guy yeah. on um, Instagram, and he has the most beautiful hair I've ever seen. It's just literally a rainbow, and it's gorgeous. I'll have to sh I'll have to send you it. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. That's, but that sounds really hard to pull off. Make my hair longer and stuff. So, so after yeah. you got your four track, 
yeah, got the four track, was in the ska band, um, studied, uh, studied um, jazz guitar for a little while. Um, that's where I sort of began my formal education with music. Um, prior to that, I was just completely self-taught. Mm-hmm. Um, went to school for um, to learn about recording and post-production. So I took a little detour from music and was in worked in a recording studio for a little while. Um, then, uh, uh, you know, then I was recording VO, a lot of what we call ADR, um, which is where you record, uh, someone it's when, it's when they uh, replace the dialogue in a film, when they bring the actor into the studio and they have them match the lip sync. Mm -hmm. So I did that for a while, recorded in a music studio for a while. I took that detour because I wanted to learn the technical side of, um, of, of music because at the time really the only way you know computers were not ubiquitous the way that they are today i mean uh, at least in terms of um recording software it wasn't so freely available and um and so you know i knew i wanted to record myself i just didn't have the money to pay an engineer at the time it would have cost hundreds of dollars mm-hmm. so i was like well i'll just teach i'll learn you know and so i went to school for that got my um so that was a little detour, got, got my degree in music, um, uh, an associate's degree, and then my bachelor's degree. And, and I got my uh, bachelor's in music composition um, and studied classical guitar uh, while I was in college as well. And, um, and it wasn't until my later years in college where I realized that you know, my lifelong passion of p- playing video games and the other passion of playing music was something that I could merge together and and make into a career. And uh, once I, once that light bulb went off, I was very determined to try to get into the industry. And I think I spent a a good five years trying to network and break into the industry. And, you know, I I had my job on the side, which was a computer technician. um, And I would just fix people's computers and computer problems. and, uh, and so, yeah, um, it, breaking in the industry back then was tough because the amount of jobs that were available at the time, there weren't that many. So I'm talking about like 2006, 2007. So you would go on the various job posting sites for video games and you, you would see maybe one or two audio jobs posted every single year. Right. Oh. And and a lot of them required you to move. So a lot, you know, frequently they were in the UK or in Singapore or, you know, something or in Canada or something like that. And uh, so, but I was very determined and I really wanted to, I just wanted to work on games because I love them. I didn't really care how. And so my, uh, my first job in the industry was at a studio called the, called White Moon Dreams. And um, I did sound effects for them and I worked with uh, the composer that we hired and I, we recorded VO and um, unfortunately the games we were working on got canceled and then I got a job at uh, Pandemic Studios as a sound designer and did a lot of localization and uh, um, additional sound design and this was towards the tail end of when Pandemic Studios um, was open and I was there for maybe six months. What's that? Oh, right. Yes, I know. Right. Yeah. That name would never work nowadays. Right. Yeah, I know. Um, 
Yeah. And so the studio got closed down a little bit later. Um, and then I got the job at Obsidian and I've been at Obsidian since 2010. So it's been 11 years. Wow. And in that time, I started there as a sound designer. My first project was Fallout New Vegas. And in that time, I've been able to work on a ton of projects, just every single kind of project you can imagine from a South Park game to a Fallout game to a to a, 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 a tactical tank, World of Tanks sort of clone <laughs> to, you know, uh, Infinity Engine throwback games like Pillars of Eternity and The Outer Worlds and everything in between. And it's just been a really great experience. And um, it wasn't until about halfway through my career at Obsidian where I started writing music for our scores. And so I wrote the music for Pillars of Eternity 1 and 2 and for Tyranny. Um, for the Outer Worlds and for uh, a card game called Pathfinder Adventure Card Game, and and, um, and grounded, of, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, it's speaking been quite of a the, journey. Yeah, yeah, totally. Speaking of those, like um, the Outer Wilds, that was kind of one that went absolutely insane. You know, um, how was working Outer on Worlds? Things? Sorry, Outer Worlds. Outer Worlds. Outer Worlds. Yeah. Um, I know. Uh, <laughs> that went insane. So, how was working on that for you? Do you find like oh. working on different games, you do it differently or do you have kind of the same kind of path that you work down? No, I, I, I always approach the, when I write very, very similarly. Um, I always start with the concept of the game itself. Um, you know, what kind of story are we trying to tell? Because in my view, that's what music does the best. It tells a story that um, words cannot express. Um, and so I'm always looking for what is the emotional angle that I can try to hit with the music that maybe the story isn't overtly trying to tell, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and with every game that I work on, I always, you know, in my view, music is the expression of the soul, right? It's, of, it's the expression of the heart. Yeah. And um, that's what I try to express in our games. So I'll try to figure out what is that emotional human angle of the people in this world that we're trying to tell. So in, in Pillars of Eternity 1, um, the, uh, the game was about the, the hollowborn and it's, it's these children who are born without souls. And as a parent, you know, that's a very visceral type of, you know, as with someone with an active imagination, it's very um, imagining that sort of thing is, is sort of tragic, right? And so when I wrote the main theme, I wrote it from the perspective of the people that lived in the world of Aeora. And there's this little section in the middle that's a very simple fluty sort of uh, very reduced thing where it's just two flutes and that it has a very childlike innocence to it, right? And that is to sort of speaking to these children who uh, are, are robbed of their humanity. Um, for the outer worlds, you know, they're, the people in the Halcyon um, colony are under are oppressed effectively, right? But but they don't. It's almost to the point where they don't even realize it, um, mm -hmm. and they're oppressed by these corporations, um, and uh, to the point where they they don't even. They're just a, more or less like robots, right? Yeah, they're just kind of plod along. Yeah, just living their lives, uh, you know, in these very corporately approved ways. Um, and so what I wanted to try to tell with the theme for that game was, you know, well, imagine growing up with your family, you know, and trying to make ends meet in the Halcyon colony with where, you know, where everything is sort of rationed out to you in corporate approved ways. 
Um, and what would that be like? And so what kind of hope would you have as a family trying to live in that environment? I have to admit, um, the main theme for that, it's probably the only game I remember of sitting and listening to the entire thing without even pressing, you know, a button to, to start playing. It's just beautiful, I have to admit. Beautiful. Thank you. And I know yes. you were talking about kind of engaging the story and kind of engaging the player, et cetera. Et cetera. When you think about certain games or, or soundtracks, for example, like um, John Hillman's uh, That Dragon Cancer, it's possibly one of my favorite soundtracks of all time. It's so minimalistic, but yet so beautiful. And you can hear every single note because he gives the time for those notes to breathe and for the person listening to be able to hear them and to hear the kind of pain, love, just every, the confusion, everything that the people in the, in the game are going through. When actually, you know, that was actually written about some family friends of his, some friends of his and the situation that they were in, you know, really beautiful and really touching. Other time yeah. you think about games like, you know, and I say this all the time, but it's still one of the best games I've ever played, which is Everybody's Gone to the Rapture. You know, Jessica's music for that just blows, I mean, she blows my mind because she's so unbelievably talented and really, really funny, just FYI. <laughs> she's a really good friend, you know, and I've been lucky enough to meet her a few times um, in person. And um, she recently did, obviously, a little Orpheus with Jim Fowler um, and but like she sent me the um, music for Everybody's Gone to the Rapture about a month, about six weeks beforehand. And I listened to it and there was two particular tracks that I heard and both made me cry. I, I admit and I've always said this, I'm a crier when it comes to music. If a particular piece of music moves me, I'm gone. You know, <laughs> it's like there's a piece of music on John's soundtrack for um, That Dragon Cancer called Awake, Oh Awake, My Joel. And it's probably in my top three pieces of music of all time. Yeah. Without wow. question. That's, but that's when you get music, right? Yeah, it's, it, that always blows my mind when somebody like yourself, a composer who can create something that you can engage with emotionally without even playing the game just blows my mind, you know? Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's like some of those emotions imagine in that dragon cancer, you know, it just, it's, it's a, it's autobiographical about a father at trying to take care of his son who's terminally sick, you know, and um, I, what you I, go through, I can only imagine is just so complex. Like how do words possibly express that inner emotion i mean i don't have children and i remember two stories to do with the the interview that i did with john hillman before is <laughs> the we did it the interview twice because the first time um i did two interviews in one day i not not that time uh basically my partner wiped the mac and it wiped the interview <laughs> without without me saving the cloud I was like oh no so I had to email John and just say look would you mind if we terribly if we did it did it again excuse me and he was like no problem 
So we did it again and it was fine. But the first time that we did it, like I don't even have children. And I, I spent most of the interview on the verge of tears and you could hear it in my voice. And I, and I was wow. so conscious about it, but there was nothing I could do about it, you know, because it was just, it's a, it's a really difficult subject matter to deal with. It is. I mean, it's, it doesn't take much to put yourselves in that, that, that father's shoes to understand what they're feeling. Right. And we've all been parent, I'm sorry, we've all been children and we've all had parents. Right. And we've all had siblings and, you know, maybe all of us, I don't know. No, maybe not. In a way, <laughs> many of us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, for example, as you can see, my, one of my dogs, Peggy in the background, mm-hmm. um, she would be our fourth, uh, when our, our, our first one passed away in 2016 and it's it was the hardest thing I think I've ever gone through you know that dealing with that kind of emotion because people don't realize sometimes that they're not just an animal they're or a pet they're part of your life and you know like almost your child or children um your world revolves around them and you don't sometimes you don't even realize you know, the first thing we, we do in the morning is get up, take the, take the out for a walk, you know, go to the bathroom, make sure they're fed, you know, before we even do anything ourselves. True? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I've, I've never owned a dog, but I've had cats throughout my life and um, they become your little buddy, your little friend, your, your, your little confidant, you know, um, and it very much is, is very similar because they depend on you for their life for to be alive right and for affection you know and uh well they're very affectionate all right (laughs) yeah yeah i could see you snuggled up on the bed i know i don't know where the other one is though they both need feeding soon so i'm sure they'll be delighted yeah yeah um so how did you deal with the kind of different um themes through the games that you've worked on Yeah. um, I always, the way that I write music is that I just write what I feel Mm -hmm. and I, I try to write from the heart. And I know this is a continuation of what we were just talking about, but you know, um, a a lot of the time, um, I don't know how this works. It's just, you know, I have some sort of inner muse where frequently it'll be the middle of the night and I know I have to write this piece of music um, and, and I'm thinking about it and thinking about it and, and notes just start appearing in my mind. You know, yeah. I just start hearing music and that's when I know that, uh, I've, uh, I've struck gold because, you know, I'll rush outside and into the living room and with my phone and try not to wake up the rest of the family and quietly <laughs> whisper yes into the to the mic of the phone you what i'm hearing in my head many people i speak to that say the same thing <laughs> yeah it's true it's because when you try to i i always find this when i'm trying to deliberately write a piece of music you just all right i'm gonna no it's yeah. like it's it doesn't come from that it comes from some inner subconscious place mm-hmm. in a way and i think part that's part of the reason where I have never really kind of scripted any conversations that I have with any composer because it doesn't come across well. Um, I think it, you, it almost sounds a bit cardboard and it doesn't help a conversation kind of flow. You know, even when I did um, the panels at EGX, I had a very, very basic kind of, you know, to-do list, start, 
make sure conversation happens, finish questions yeah. answered. Not <laughs> kind of, you know, um, I can't wait to do those again. Actually, to be brutally honest, because I've missed that with the pandemic. You yeah, know, really, really missed that. Yeah, human interaction has—it's something that you know. Once it's gone, mm-hmm. you realize what you don't have. You know. Yeah, totally. Like um, my best friend, she's been shielding since the beginning of March last year. So, and we're very, very huggy people. So uh, June nineteenth is when she can come out because um, she'll have had her second vaccine. And um, I'm lucky it's a Saturday because we're going to spend about an hour just hugging each other silly. I can't wait. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I I recently got the vaccine as well. Very fortunate to be able to do that. And um, and I went to uh, I went to lunch with some friends, some coworkers, mm-hmm. and I hadn't gone to lunch in about a year. Yeah. Um, and taking off my mask and feeling if I felt very strange and exposed, you know? <laughs> oh, totally. Um, I'm going out on Friday with work and it's a bit of a, you know, bother because you have to book days and days in advance or sometimes weeks to be able to get a table, even in the pub. But it's the first time I'll be in the pub since um, summer last year. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was a long, a long time. time. Yeah. It is. I can't wait. Honestly. Can't wait. And like me and my friends, we've organized, we've um, booked some gigs. So um, we went to a couple of gigs in the next kind of couple of months. And again, that's the first time since the beginning of the, or this middle of the first and second lockdown here. So again, it's been about a year. What do you, oh, sorry, gigs. So you're in a band? No, no, no. Um, no, not musically minded whatsoever. <laughs> oh, okay. um, just with my ear. Um, oh. No, we're going to see a, um, a a male singer in Manchester in July, and then I'm going to see some people from Drag Race in September. So nice. some friends. So I can't wait. Just it's yeah. kind of like you're getting back to that normal, you know? Yeah, and what is normal now? Yeah, I know. I think at the minute for me the, the the one kind of thing that I have as a want is to be able to go home because I've not seen my parents in two or three years and they're all back in I'm my sisters and stuff and they're all back in Dublin so that's hard yeah it's really hard especially because um my mum she had an accident before Christmas she um broke her pelvis and she broke her hip so she was in hospital for a few months on her own so she couldn't wow. see anybody and have any visitors and yeah but yeah that's scary especially nowadays right being in the hospital yeah you know. i mean because she's like 75 okay that's the that too that should kill me <laughs> so she i mean so that my both my parents are so they're getting on so i'm bursting to go home yeah i bet I Definitely. bet you are. Also, I really want to go to another VGM gig. Yeah. It's been ages, you know? I like seeing things online. I, mean, I, I don't know whether you know, but there's like um, a UK singer called Sophie Ellis-Bexter. Mm-hmm. She, um, during the pandemic, she did this um, kitchen disco, she called it. And every Friday she would be on Instagram Live 
doing a disco from a kitchen, singing songs of hers, doing cover versions, having like she's got like five kids and they're just running around wild. And it was just hilarious, just brilliant. So she's been doing those. She stopped them now, but she'll probably do like the occasional one for special occasions. And um, going to see her live this year as well. Sorry, next year. She was um, planning to play this month, actually, but it's been pushed back till March. But yeah, can't wait. But yeah. silly things you can you can't wait to do. I mean, I've spent three days at the, a week now in the office, and I love it because it's it's silly things like getting on a bus and seeing people and you know going out and buying lunch. Excuse me. It's just the minor things that make you, your day kind of really exciting. <laughs> yeah, right. I know it's mundane little things that you you don't appreciate until they're gone, and then when they're gone. Yeah. You know, for me, for the pandemic, I it took me a while for that to to affect me because I, I tend to be um, kind of a hermit just mm-hmm. naturally. I, I don't mind isolation. I kind of prefer it in a way. <laughs> you um, wouldn't be the first person to say that on this show. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sort of the lifestyle requires it in a way because you you need to you need to be able to have a quiet environment where you can hear yourself think, you know, mm-hmm. um, because it's such an ephemeral thing right there's notes happening in your head and you're trying to manifest them you know and it it always blows my mind and how you can create something so amazing and so much of it and like I remember um Gareth Coker he invited me to um London in December 2019 uh to see the recording of what was now Ari and the Will of the Wisps and I've never seen anything like it the, the man is a machine you know he's he was sat at the at the mixing desk and the live the live orchestra would play and they'd be changing you know notes things tiny little things minute by minute you know and it was just minor you know a minor up or minor down or changing something out changing, putting something in just blows my mind how people like you can do that you know I think it's it's a calling almost yeah um you know that's interesting that you bring that up because when you're working with an orchestra um so the the way that you communicate with an orchestra is with written music right Mm -hmm. and um sheet music is notoriously unreliable in terms of um expressing what what you want it to be right um you you have some symbols that you can use and um that can be interpreted in so many so many different ways and as the composer you hear it one very specific way in your head and you do your best um, when you're notating the music to try to express what that means with these very cryptic symbols um and um you know, there, there are some people, I work with an orchestrator, his name, uh, for many years, I've worked with a, a guy named Ryan Humphreys, and he, um, he's an expert at this, and he's really good at figuring out how to, um, how to help guide the orchestra, and he, one of the things that he does besides make sure that the, the music that I write fits with the instruments that I've written them for, but he also makes sure that what he's hearing with what we call the mock-up, which is the computerized version that I provide him, is something that can be translated to a musician. And, um, you know, 
there's so much interpretation that goes on there that even sometimes when he and I uh, will finish a piece and he's fully orchestrated and notated it and I look at it and I'm like, yeah, that seems right. And then we give it to a musician, it comes out completely the opposite or very different than what I imagined it would be. And to some degree, you have to embrace that as a, as a composer because, um, because that's sort of the beauty of working with live musicians is that they, they bring their own experiences to the, to the table and their own um, way of expressing music. And so you, you can't, if, if you try to fight that, then you are losing out on the reason why you collaborate with amazing musicians, right? Um, but there are some times where you're, you're trying to create a very special effect and it's, it's, it's sometimes surprising to folks how much time you can spend on such a short passage of music, right? Mm -hmm. Just, it needs to be shaped in a very specific way. And so you just do it over and over and over again until you kind of get what you want, you know? And frequently what happens with me is that um, we'll do that and we'll record it over and over and over again, maybe this little passage. And then when, I'm, when I get the music back, um, the recordings back, I will edit them the, I will edit the, the tracks and the different takes and splice them together to make sort of the perfect track. Because I think another component of it is working with an orchestra is, um, well, let's face it, it's you're hiring, you know, 70, 80 people. Um, and so the, the clock is ticking and, um, you, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not inexpensive to do that, right? So, you know, if you if you're on a tight budget, which many people frequently are, you kind of have to, you know, you would rather have the perfect take from the musician and just have it be amazing from from start to finish. But when you're on a when you're on a schedule and time is ticking by, you have to just get what you can and then come back. And if you're not happy with it, massage that into into the form that you're looking. Oh, I for. definitely saw that with um, Garrett because you know start at nine p.m., lunch at twelve, back at one finish at 5 30 absolutely no going over you know nope nope um, because you have to pay everyone overtime yes. you know, and it's and, air uh, studios so it's not going to be cheap no air studios definitely no and yeah. i mean what a beautiful hall too by the oh, way it's absolutely uh, incredible i will say it was the best day of my life it's yeah, one of the things wow. i've always wanted to see and i never thought in a strange way i'm connected with ori now because I was in that room when it was being recorded, like physically in, the, in with the orchestra. So in a weird way, every time I listen to it, I'm like, I can hear me in that. Isn't that yeah. funny? That's funny. But it's I a surreal feeling hearing yeah, all those totally. musicians play at the same time. It, it almost doesn't feel real. Yeah, it's, totally. It, it was amazing. And it's funny because you mentioned about using an orchestrator. Um, mm -hmm. Something I did last year um, before the you know rona hit um i was in, asked to um be a music consultant for a um a game that is due out very shortly um the magnificent truffle pigs um by a new studio called thumped which is uh, a dear friend of mine called andrew he was he used to work with the um chinese room um, and that was an experience because it's actually hard, a lot harder than people think, you know, because you have to read the script, you have to understand the characters, you have to get inside their head, you know, listen to the conversations that they're having, you know, and then curate playlists, 
really kind of, you know, pick out and pop in where you think the right pieces, you know, for the game, the feel of it. Because at the end of the day, you're potentially changing how the game is perceived or heard, you know. And I'm really excited about the news that's coming out. I I can't say a thing, but I am so excited about the the, the news that's going to be coming out very soon. So um, I will let you know as soon as it's possible. But yeah, yeah, really exciting experience. And I hope to do that again. Yeah, that is. Have you ever considered a career in music supervision? Because that's that's effectively what you did. And there are entire jobs and that's all you do. I've never thought about that. I, I was always like uh, doing the music consultancy, you know, it is it's hours and hours of work and it's really hard and it's really personal because for me it was because it was for a a friend but you don't want to lap that person down because they're not just a friend they're also your employer you know it it, it was a, a paid position so I wasn't going to make sure I want I wanted to make sure that I was doing the best possible job you know and I've always said to Andrew that you know at any at any point if he needs anything or I feel that anything needs changing, I would always, you know, recurate those playlists or add new ones. Or, you know, I did ones for the characters. I did a separate one for the actual game, you know, with all different music throughout each one. Um, and you're having to think about the conversations that the characters have had and the situations that they're going to be in or are in and their history. And, you know, it's such a big melting pot to work with. But I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And to see um, that game come out with the music that's uh, alongside with it has made me like the proudest person in the world. You feel like a big proud parent, you know? When you hear your music with a game, it's the best thing in the world, I would imagine. It it, it absolutely is. I mean, it's it's a real privilege, you know? Um, Not everyone has that opportunity and um and every time it happens to me uh, a i can't believe that it's happening you know because it's just a dream come true and b um you know it's just so surreal right um it almost doesn't feel like it's happening you know um so i i definitely relate you know and and what you said about um music changing the way that you feel um it it completely does right uh the smallest change um to the music can completely affect what you're feeling inside right horror games are very effective at doing that mm-hmm. right they, they manipulate your emotions with with music or the lack of music um one of my favorite uh youtube videos um that uh demonstrates this is uh they call it um star wars without williams or something like that and it's it's this clip of the end of star wars a new hope um, when they're getting the medals uh, at the very end of the of the film, and there's no music no whatsoever. Yeah, I've yeah. seen that. That is so funny. It's hilarious. It's so awkward to watch, you know. And it's like, you know, and it makes you realize, like, wow, how horrible this is without music, right? You know. Yeah, that's really funny. I've not seen that in ages. I'm gonna have to get that out tonight. Yeah, it's good. I, I. I like to show it to folks to help 
folks who aren't musically inclined to understand the value of music too. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's really great at communicating that. Um, yeah. There was also for a while when flash was still, um, I think still on the internet. Um, there was a website called Dooku.net, like count Dooku from star Wars. And it was just a clip of him on the speeder bike kind of going over these canyons and you can hit this button. And every single time you hit the button, it cycles out a, a different piece of music. Um, and I can't remember all the different pieces of music, but it was very, it was popular music from the mid to late eighties. And um, it was just, you know, every time you hit the button, it had a different feel completely. Sometimes it was like sweeping epic and sometimes it was com comedic and other times it was, you know, you felt like you were watching the breakfast club or, you know, it's just like, it was all over the place. And the, nothing changed except for the music. The vi visuals were exactly the same. Amazing. I always get, it blows my mind with, um, I'm addicted to TikTok, like mm -hmm. proper addicted. I'm, I, I have to, if I go on TikTok, I'll be there two hours later, you know, just flicking through, you know, chuckling away to myself, sending TikToks to friends. You know, I, it blows my mind what people can do on there. I saw one girl and she, um, there was somebody recording her recording while well, she was recording a TikTok. And like she was doing all these like different movements and, you know, putting a hat on, taking the hat off. And it was all out of sync. But then when she stitched it together and put it on and they showed the actual TikTok, it was absolutely mind blowing. You know, it, it blows my mind what people can do these days with music and tech. Just insane. Yeah, the technology it has been democratized to a certain degree, right? Um, you still need access to a computer, but even with TikTok, you don't need a computer. You have your phone mm -hmm. and your phone. The phone is the most ubiquitous computer that across the world um it's mm -hmm. very common for folks to have that and um that's unlocked the potential for all of these creative people that didn't have access to the that technology i mean for years you know i was talking about earlier when i was started in the industry the you know there were a few ways that you can record yourself you could get a reel-to-reel -reel, um tape mm -hmm. uh wow. recorder um you could get one of those cassette recorders you could get Pro Tools, which had just had been out only for a few years at that time. Mm -hmm. But a lot of these solutions were thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah. Um, and now you can download an app for free and, just, uh, and do a lot of that, which is yeah. amazing. Mind-blowing. So I'm aware I'm keeping you. Um, I'm going to ask you a really difficult question as your last question. Okay, I'm ready. What is your favorite game soundtrack of all time that isn't a, a work of your own <laughs> well that's easy because none of my soundtracks are ever even going to be remotely my my favorite <laughs> because i always listen back and can only hear the warts and all so mm -hmm. yeah um let's see wow uh i know some composers soundtrack. who don't listen to their music that they've finished because they don't want to hear the warts and all yeah that's true i i I have that same problem. I can't play games that I worked on. I just mm. can't. I don't, I don't know why. Um, I suspect I'm not the only one. Favorite music. Um, okay, so favorite soundtrack of all time is uh, the soundtrack for The Elder Scrolls Three: Mor Morrowind. It's 
probably one of the single most influential soundtracks uh, on me as an artist mm-hmm. uh, ever, which is kind of a, a difficult thing to say. I mean, I haven't really listened to it recently, especially considering everything that happened uh, with yes. Jeremy Soule. Yes. Um, so it's, it's, it's a complex thing. And I, you know, I, uh, I mean, it's not complex, but it's, uh, it's, you know, a shame. Um, yeah. I think but uh, in these kind of circumstances, and it happens a lot in, you know, with famous people, writers, whichever, you know, um, there has to be, and there can be, I think, a separation from the person and their work. Yeah, because you look at the, the the work in that vein, you know, Skyrim just blows my mind. The the yeah. beautiful melodies that are in that game. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, yeah, that's sorry. This is a big tangent, but it touches on exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that we grappled with when I was in school and I, I was taking music history classes and we would talk about Bach or Wagner and there was a very strong anti-Semitic, um, you know, mess, you know, they, they were strongly anti-Semitic and even in some of Bach's work, um, you know, some of his, uh, some of the, the lyrics um, are, are, pretty inflammatory like by today's standards right um it would never happen today or it would but you know i didn't know this canceled pretty fast yeah i genuinely didn't know this yeah i mean and and it's like when you listen to Bach's music or wagner's music it's like wow so amazing um such beautiful music and yeah i mean you know when you think about the type of people they were um they may have been great people but they also had these really kind of abhorrent sort of views on life there's the dog yes she said there we go wanted to come up and say hello so a fitting end i think but yes i just wanted to say um a massive thank you for taking your time out of the day because i understand that everybody's so busy um particularly your composers you never have a day off do you (laughs) no it's it's when you're working in a game studio every day is a busy day good good I'm glad to hear it. Right, I shall uh, say thank you very much. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. And maybe we'll have you back someday as, again. Thank you so much, Pete. It was great to talk to you. No worries. Thank you. Bye.